I'd like you to read this verse that is on the back of the bulletin as we turn to the time of teaching today. Do you see here the year of purpose 2021 in the middle of the page? Do you see that Ephesians verse? I'm going to ask you to do something if you're able to. And at home, I'd ask you to do this too. Stand up and rise. Let's rise and declare the word of the Lord together. Let's everybody stand to your feet. If that's difficult for you, no problem. Uh, no judgment, no condemnation in Christ. But if you're able to... We welcome you to do that. And we're going to read this together. Ephesians 2.15. Now, at home, if you don't have this verse right in front of you, I'm going to say it to you first. So I'm going to say it solo, okay? Don't, don't read it with me yet. I'm saying this for the benefit of people at home. Once I've said it, they'll be able to repeat it, and we'll all say it together. Wave at me if you understand these complicated instructions. Four people have got it, and the rest are going to follow. All right, so here's me speaking at first, just for the sake of those at home. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. Let's read it together aloud and with conviction. Together. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. Ephesians 2.15. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I, I read that verse as we come to today's teaching because... The title of today's teaching is Animosity with Ammon. Now that may seem like a really rather obscure title. Animosity with Ammon. Animosity. It means an antagonized situation where there is bitterness, discord, debate, disagreement, violence, where there's conflict. In other words, the antithesis of peace. Ammon is a people group we're going to talk about. A people group from the ancient Near Eastern world in which Israel lived. And throughout the generations of Israel's history, really throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible, you can see many occasions in which there is animosity with Ammon. There is strife between the people groups. We're going to be traveling back again over 3,000 years into the era of the judges who were mainly military leaders of ancient Israel during its time in which it was basically a loose confederation of tribes. There was not yet a king over all of Israel. There were tribal lands and tribal chieftains and leaders and, and there were these seasons, there were these cycles in which judges, so-called because they were gifted by God to judge the situation and bring righteousness and justice to where it was lacking. But as I say, they were primarily military leaders, were ruling over parts or large uh, majorities of Israel in these days. And during that time, there was antagonism and animosity with Ammon. So we're going to be looking at some history and we're going to be talking about some facts. But what I want to foreground in this is that as usual, as in all of these messages, hopefully as in every sermon, the real story here is about you and me. It's about the animosity that you and I experience today, that we may face, that we may feel. Animosity in the workplace. Oh, <laughs> that never happens, right? Listen, some, place, some workplaces are based on animosity. I shall name no names nor point any fingers, but I know of at least one person in the room who works in the legal field, and I would say animosity has a big thing to do with the legal field. 
Uh, now, that may, not, that may not sound very complimentary to the legal field. It's not intended as a dig at all. In fact, courts and judges are intended to resolve animosity, right? That, that's at least the ideal. Yes, we can smile about the reality versus the ideal, but it's not just in the legal field because there's animosity in, in business too. After all, business is a competitive venture. You know, it's often seen as a zero-sum game. In other words, in order for me to win, you've got to lose. Sports is like that. Athletics is like that. When I was acting, going to an audition, you're very well aware that there are hundreds of people auditioning for this role and only one that's going to get it. Now, that shouldn't necessarily mean that it builds animosity, but you can experience animosity. I remember one filmmaker quoted as saying that not only is it a dog-eat-dog world, but in the media, it's dog doesn't return other dog's phone calls, which is a way of passive animosity, I guess. Passive aggression. Animosity in the workplace between workers. Maybe you have a boss that drives you crazy. Maybe you have a staff that drives you crazy. Maybe the animosity that you experience is with a neighbor or a family member, a sibling, a parent, child, a child that you're raising. In the teen years, there can be great difficulties between parents and children, and animosity can rise. But there can be tremendous animosity between adult children and parents. Animosity in marriage. There can be tremendous animosity even in the deepest and most intimate relationships of our lives. In fact, if you look to the stage, if you look to drama, the greatest dramas are always about antagonism and animosity in families. I think Eugene O'Neill made a career out of writing about that. So did the ancient Greeks. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason why you find it in Shakespeare and you find it on TV and you find it in households today. And the reason is that that is the world that we live in. It is a world in which there is antagonism, selfishness, disagreement, discord, misunderstanding. Today's message is about an ancient situation, but it's also about a present problem and a very present solution. The problem is not just animosity, but what gives rise to it. What gives rise to dispute, discord, and disagreement? And how can we, as people of the Lord, who are called to speak the truth in love, to stand upon truth and yet also to show grace, to be forgiving and to be kind and to do no wrong, and yet to also stand for truth, and having done all to stand, how can we respond wisely and well in a healthy way to animosity and adversity in our lives today? I believe that the word of the Lord has a lesson for us in that. And Ephesians 2.15 has already made clear what the purpose of the Lord is. The purpose of people is often to win the battle, to win the debate, to get the measure passed that they want, to make the product that beats every other product in the market, to be the one that gets the prize, that gets the role, that wins the case. But the purpose of the Lord is to create in himself a new humanity, and a one of peace, where all people can become one. And he did that at the cost of his own blood, the blood of his son. By the conclusion of today's message, we're going to partake of communion together. If you're streaming at home or watching this recording, I encourage you to find elements in your home or wherever you're at that could serve as communion elements. 
If you have a piece of bread or a bit of cracker that you can utilize, something to approximate the cup, whether it's juice or whatever you've got available to you, what really sanctifies the elements is your prayer and your faith and are partaking of them together. Now, if for those at home you don't have elements available, don't be distressed. You can simply participate via prayer. But it's also one of the reasons why I love to get to be here in the room together, because communion is intended to be taken face-to-face in one place. It's not that communion does not stretch beyond every boundary and perimeter that this natural universe could create. It does. It permeates all of creation because it's the blood and body of Christ. But the experience that we receive by partaking of communion together in one place is irreplaceable. So every Sunday, first Sunday of the month, we do this together. And if you're not with us in person this Sunday, maybe you would consider the first Sunday of November or December or a future month being here physically present with us to partake of this communion together. So that the purpose of the Lord would be fulfilled, that we would be one in Him, one body, one people of peace, and that we would receive the blessing in his blood to be peacemakers. For Jesus, the Lord himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. Be that blessing. Receive that blessing. And let that blessing penetrate and permeate into any arena of animosity in your life today. As the teaching goes forward, be praying. Where is the area that the Lord wants to bring peace in your marriage, with your children, with your neighbors, in your workplace, with your staff, with your friends. Maybe it's larger. Maybe it's a social situation. Maybe it's how you interact on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever. I could start making things up. People would think, that must be a new social media. You know, if I started saying, on Bing Bong, I want you to behave. And then people go, what's Bing Bong? I've got to get it. Bing Bong probably is something. I don't even know. It will be now. Where's the area where the Lord wants to bring peace into you and through you into a situation? The animosity with Ammon is a story about how you and I can find peace today. Lord, we come to your word seeking your peace. And we also come, Lord, carrying our areas of animosity, anger, pain, resentment, frustration. They may be things that we feel It may be a situation in which we know somebody feels that towards us. And even if we don't reciprocate it, we feel helpless or victimized by the awareness that someone's angry with us. But it may very well be that we're angry with someone too. Or there's a situation that is just not working out. Lord, you know all of these things. We ask that your mighty word and the preaching of it would be anointed to speak to those issues with your word of life, blessing, and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Guys in the booth, is it possible for me to get my slides on the rear screen here too? Thanks. So today, we're actually going to be in part 10 of our Judges Cycle, moving over several chapters. Um, As a reminder, the Judges Cycle is this pattern that we see not only in the ancient book of Judges in the time period that I described just moments ago, but also a pattern that really relates to humanity throughout history. It's one in which people who are turned towards God or aware of God, ostensibly God's people, become complacent. God's given them good things. They're in the land. 
in the case of Israel. And they begin to give way to the curiosity and to the, uh, to the um, propensity to explore different beliefs, to accommodate the cultures around them. In the case of Israel, they were surrounded by many different people groups, such as the people of Ammon, also the Moabites, also the Philistines. And we've been hearing about these various different uh, people groups throughout the time of our study, particularly in the book of Joshua and in Judges. And all of these different people groups at that time were engaged in idolatry, which was about worshiping regional gods or gods that they considered their familial gods, but it was also about trying to gain control over the natural world. There were gods that were gods of the harvest and gods that were gods of the rain, whether there was going to be a storm or a famine, whether there was going to be blight or bounty was seen as the domain of the gods. And so sometimes the people of ancient Israel felt like if our God isn't giving us what we want, we're going to go to another God. Or if these people all around us are worshiping this God, then we want to fit in, especially as they started to intermarry and things like that. And so it became an accommodation to cultural pressures. And that kind of cultural peer pressure goes on today. In fact, you and I here in the United States in Los Angeles are living in a place where there are many different beliefs that are not only unbiblical, they're anti-biblical. They're antagonistic to the Bible. There's animosity in our arena towards this word and towards this God because he is alive in this word. This word is breathed by his spirit and inspired by it. And you can be sure that not only are there people who disregard the word, but behind that there are spirits, principalities and powers, demonic forces at work in our world that have animosity to the Christ. We call them antichrist. And the spirit of antichrist has established all kinds of invisible idolatry in our world. Anytime you and I give ourselves over to something that isn't God. Pastor Wilson had us singing that I surrender myself to you, I give myself to you. Well, that's worship. So anything that you give yourself to, through the looking at, through the engaging in, through the investing in, the things that you spend time in, the things that you prioritize, those have the possibility of becoming idols if they become more important than God. And it's very easy to lose that perspective and to not realize that in your life, God is competing with other idols. And one of the ways in which God makes that apparent to people is that he gives them over to that situation. So the judges cycle is one in which God turns people over to the idols they adore. And God even says it in the passage today that you and I will read together in just a few moments. God says, you've called on these other gods and you want them to serve you and help you. So now you look to them for help because the, the, um, the Ammonites are coming against Israel. They are battling against Israel. They are decimating Israel. They are causing harm and damage to Israel. First in the area of Gilead, which is across the Jordan, but also then, but there are um, Israelite tribes there, but also they're beginning to invade into Israel proper. And it becomes an increasingly uh, desperate situation. And God says, if you're so desperate, why don't you go back to those idols? And actually what the people will say in today's encounter is, well, you know, I'm going to paraphrase here quite obviously. They, they say, you've got a point, God, but regardless of that, save us today anyway. And he does. He sees their misery. 
the misery that caused them to call back upon him. And he raises up a judge. It's a cycle that happens over and over again. For us, it points to the ultimate judge, Jesus, because each of the judges are anointed. They are Christos. They are Mashiach in the sense, the small sense, that you and I might think of as Christian. It's a strange thing to say that these Hebrew judges are Christians. But what I mean by that is they come under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is their appointing as a judge and that facilitates victory in the land. But of course, the ultimate example of that and the righteous judge of all the earth is Jesus Christ. Each of the judges points us to the Prince of Peace as they bring peace into the land. Peace, even as we saw in Ephesians 2. But as peace returns and the people prosper, they turn away again. And that's the cycle that you and I can identify, not just in our world, but if we're going to be honest with ourselves, in ourselves. In fact, those areas where we have animosity, workplace, marriage, children, friends, whatever the situation is, what idols exist in that arena in your heart? Not for your spouse, not for your child, not for your boss or your employee, but for you. The idol of my way or the highway, the idol of me first, the idol of I do it to you because you did it to me, the idol of I'm entitled to feel this way, I'm entitled to have this, I'm entitled to get this. Those are the areas where if you and I are experiencing animosity and hardship, the Lord may be saying to us, take a look at yourself. What's going on in you? And that's where the Lord wants to work in you and I. The Lord wants to come and be a judge in our own heart. And the judges show us the peace and the victory that comes from God, but they're also very imperfect, just like you and I are. They show us how people struggle with it. So I like the judges for that. And actually, as the cycle of the story of the book of Judges goes on, as I've mentioned, it's not just a whirlwind, it's a spiral, a downward descending, degrading, decreasing, decaying uh, system that we see until ultimately when we get to the end of the book of Judges in several weeks, we're going to see the whole nation kind of falling apart. I don't know if that rings any bells for anybody, but it should. The animosity in people's homes and lives and in business becomes animosity in the broader culture, becomes animosity between nations, and there's global impact. So we see in the Judges good and bad, but as the judges continue, as the era of judges continue, we find that the judges become increasingly problematic. We saw that with Gideon, right? We saw that Gideon is one of the great judges. There are six major judges in the book and six minor judges. And the major judges are called major just because we get so much more material about them. It's not to say that the minor judges were ineffective or unimportant, but there's just not as much written about them. So that's why we call them minor. But the major judges we can see a kind of progression from the, um, nobody here is perfect in this list, all right? But we see that there is a degradation in the figures, in the character of the judges. Gideon, who tore down the idols that his father and family had raised up, but then created his own idol, and his children followed it. We saw the problem with Abimelech, who is not a judge, but was a son of Gideon, 
a proto-king, a, a would-be judge, a chieftain who tried to rule over the whole nation, but he did so with animosity even towards his own people, and that ended up being a fire that burned them both. That was the subject of our study last week. Next week, we're going to look more at Jephthah, but we're going to start to talk about him today. And Jephthah is another man who is uh, a disfavored son. Um, Abimelech was the son not only of Gideon, but of Gideon's concubine, Jephthah is the son of a harlot, and his brothers, half-brothers, don't like him and ostracize him. In fact, you can actually see that what happens to Jephthah is what Abimelech was trying to avoid. Abimelech anticipated ostracization from his brothers and cut it off at the pass by cutting off their heads, I guess. But Jephthah instead goes away and uh, develops his own band of rebels but in a time of need, Jephthah gets recruited, and we're going to look at that today. So we're going to study Jephthah in greater detail next week, and especially the outcome of his life and judgeship. But we're going to see the initiation of it today because he gets recruited due to animosity with Ammon. As Ammon is attacking the nation, Jephthah is seen as a leader, a rebel leader, a gang leader, but an effective one. And so he is recruited. And in Jephthah, we see someone recruited without the text indicating that God necessarily uh, chose him. Now, obviously God works in him, and ultimately we do get a passage saying that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, but we see the increasing carnality of the people and the decreasing spirituality, and that comes to an extreme in perhaps the most famous judge, Samson, who we will study in the conclusion of this series, except for the final couple of chapters that don't involve him. But Samson is really the carnal judge. And yet, in the end, he does bring a victory, but it's at a great cost. Now, we've studied one minor judge way back at the beginning. Do you remember Shamgar? We talked about Shamgar. He was the guy who used the cattle prod as a spear. Shamgar is one of the minor judges. The other five we're going to look at in brief succession today, just sort of to, to tick the boxes. But I want to say something about those five, Tola, Jair, Ibsen, Elon, Abdon, and say that five times fast. It's no problem if you're not familiar with the names because it wouldn't be hard to forget them. First of all, they're very briefly mentioned. Uh, two of them at the beginning of chapter 10, and then I'm going to go out of order and go later into chapter 12 after the time of Jephthah because I just wanted to try and get all of these minor judges talked about at once. Now, in the process of doing that, let me first lay down some groundwork about Ammon. We talked about them. Let me, let me be more specific. The Ammonites, that is these members of what was known as the kingdom of Ammon, or the region of Ammon, were part of this ancient Near Eastern culture whose territory was in the Transjordan. If you remember the map of Israel that I've shown before, that's that area that is across or east of the Jordan River. So it's very close, it's proximal to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, and it's actually directly uh, bordering uh, areas where there were Israelite tribes living in Gilead and so forth. They typically, not always, but typically over the long history of thousands of years that they are described in the Old Testament, had a negative relationship with Israel more often than not. They were also often, but not always, but frequently aligned with the Moabites, which were a kind of fraternal group or a sister nation, if you will. 
In fact, Genesis 19 describes the origin of both Ammon and Moab as being from the sons that were born to the daughters of Lot. You may remember Lot, that's Abraham's nephew. He was living in the city of Sodom when God's judgment came upon Sodom. He and his family left. It was only he and his daughters ultimately that got out. And when they were holed up in a cave and they were alone, these city folk, the daughter said, we have no one. Our father's going to die. We're not going to have any sons to take care of us or carry on the family name or have any legacy or any ability to sustain and survive. Our only way to survive is, now this is pretty bleak stuff. This is pretty shocking stuff. Get our father drunk and sleep with him in order to, to obtain offspring. And this is what's described in Genesis 19, 30 to 38. The older daughter bears a son named Moab, which means son or of the father, from the father. And the younger daughter bears a son, Ben-Ami, which means son of the father or son of my father, son of my father's people. This gives rise to the people of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So interestingly enough, these are people that have a family relationship with Israel. The children of Israel are the children of Abraham, and Abraham is the uncle of Lot. So there's a kind of quarreling cousins going on here. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord specifically says to Israel that when they do go in and conquer Canaan during the era of Joshua, as it turns out, they are not to take land from the Ammonites because that land was promised by God to Lot's descendants. And the book of Numbers brings up another practical reality, which was that Ammon was apparently very well fortified on its borders and exceedingly strong. So it wouldn't be recommended to try and attack them for land. As it turns out, the issue that is causing animosity with Ammon is a dispute over land. Argument over who owns the land in the Middle East. I told you it's not an ancient message in every respect, right? Or it's ancient, but it's every bit as modern as it could be. So, animosity with Ammon. Now, in looking at these three chapters, Judges 10, 11, and 12, I want to kind of piece them together in an asynchronous way, or that is to say, out of the chronology of the chapters. First, I'd like to look at these five minor judges, two that we find at the beginning of chapter 10, and then the uh, remainder, th uh, three, at the uh, middle section of chapter 12. But there's one major problem. For every judge, not just these five minor judges or the six that can be found in the book or the 12 judges altogether, in every single one of them, the issue that God is always concentrated on is idolatry, which is really about infidelity to the Lord, a lack of trust in God, an unwillingness to follow Him and obey and trust. And because of that, problems arise like the two sides debating that are represented ultimately by Jephthah the judge appointed by his people, who attempts first some detente with Ammon, but ultimately it devolves into debate and finally into war. So let's look at these five minor judges, Tola, Jair, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Now basically in these passages, all that we get about these men is pretty much their name, sometimes a little bit of genealogy or geography, where they live, where they're buried, and how long they ruled, how long they judged Israel. So there's a man from Issachar, remember that's one of the 12 tribes, named Tola. He is in the area of Ephraim, 
um, and he led Israel for 23 years. Then he's died, he dies and buried. So there's got to have been victories there, and there's probably judges that aren't even mentioned in this book that did uh, historically exist. So even getting your name into the record is a pretty significant uh, point in the history of God's everlasting word. Now with Jair of Gilead, again, this is one of those regions in that Transjordan, but that is also affiliated with uh, Israel proper, Jair, we get a kind of a typical uh, additional piece of information, and it may strike us as, as odd. So we're told that he leads Israel for 22 years, and that he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. There's an almost kind of mythic sound to this. What it is really articulating is he, was, he had tremendous wealth. And in the ancient world, wealth was really characterized in two ways. The wealth of your offspring, having many children, was a very good way to create an empire, to create a dynasty, to, to provide for yourself. After all, there was no social security. Children were your social security, <laughs> quite plainly. And um, the 30 donkeys represents the other kind of wealth, which is the wealth that you and I might think of more typically today, which is resource wealth. So he had lots of kids who followed and obeyed him and who rode on donkeys, which was a sign of affluence in the ancient world when most people were walking. So that's what we are being told here. And also he has a legacy. To this day, that is the day of the writing uh, of the book of Judges, these towns, these 30 towns that they ruled over in Gilead are called Havath Jair, which means the villages or the towns of Jair. So he had a kind of a dynasty there. And then later in chapter 12, after the era of Jephthah that we're going to look at in just a second here, we are told about Ibzan of Bethlehem. Now, this may be Bethlehem where Jesus was born, or this may be a Bethlehem uh, in a different part of the country. It's difficult for us to be sure, and there's some indications that would lead in either direction. But in any case, he was born in a Bethlehem, or was from that place. He also had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and we're told that his strength was in intermarriage. Now, not intermarriage necessarily with Canaanites, but with other tribes in Israel. So he brought in women from other tribes to marry his sons, and he sent his daughters to other boys in other tribes. And this was a way of solidifying his strength and also of creating unity in the nation. So it's a part of his legacy of judgeship and peace. And he led Israel for seven years. I guess when you've got lots of marriages going on, that kind of cuts into your lifespan maybe a little bit. I don't know. After him, Elon the Zebulonite, very brief here. We just know that he had a decade of judgeship and leadership, and then he died and was buried. And then finally, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon. He had 40 sons, 30 grandsons. So now there's a multi-generational reach of this dynasty. And they rode on 70 donkeys, and he led Israel eight years. These minor judges are a reflection to us of how this system is proliferating even beyond the major stories that we get in this book. It's also a reminder to us that God is looking always for people whom he can bless to be strong in leadership, influence, and to be bridge builders, bridge makers, peacemakers. So there's a legacy there, but there's also a problem. The problem is that the judges are most frequently arising because idolatry is continuing. Here in Judges 10, we see what gives the ramp up to the recruitment of Jephthah. The Israelites are in the 
Judges cycle again. They're serving these false gods, the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Jephthah is going to come against the Ammonites. Later, Samson is going to come against the Philistines. And it's because the Israelites have forsook the Lord and no longer served them, serve him. And so the Lord became angry and he gives them into the hands of their enemies. And those enemies are shattering them and crushing them for 18 years. These groups oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. And then, this is known as the land of the Amorites, which is another group. It gets a little bit confusing, but there's a lot of movement over the years. Moabites and, and Ammonites and Amorites taking land, giving land, you know, people fight over the land. So it gets a little bit confusing for us to try and follow along with. The point here is the Ammonites now are crossing over the Jordan and coming to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. And this is causing great distress because what has been a regional problem, and it was a bad problem in the region, is now becoming a national problem. And so the nation cries out to the Lord and the nation repents. They say, we've sinned against you. I want to come back to the issue wherever you are facing hardship or struggle. It's easy to look at the situation and say the problem is these people that are doing harm to me. But the way to really get the ear of the Lord, God's listening all the time. It's really the way for God to get your ear is for you to look at where you need to repent, for me to look at where I need to repent. And we all have areas that we need to repent of. We've been forgiven of our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to consider the consequences of our actions or face and confess when we are in the wrong. And sometimes we may feel that our wrong is not wrong, but where is the wrong between us and God? Where are we not trusting God? Where are we not listening to God? Where are we not yielding to him? That's the root of the problem. So God says, look, when you called on me, didn't I help you? But you've forsaken me. You serve other gods. So I'm not going to save you anymore. You go and cry out to these other gods that you love so much. Sometimes God says to people, you want my help? But you've been burying yourself in the bottle every night. Why don't you go call out to Jack Daniels for help? If he's such a help to you. Or whatever the addiction might be. Why don't you go anesthetize yourself in Netflix again? I'm not saying Netflix is bad, and I'm not saying that you aren't entitled to determine what you can and can't eat or drink. What I'm saying is there are things that you and I turn to for relief that aren't God, and they may cause problems in our lives. And it's just possible that God might say, if you really want me to solve that problem, you better turn to me and give up that bottle, that crutch, that relationship, that woman at work, or that guy at the store that you like to talk to that isn't your spouse, that understands you the way your spouse doesn't, or that gives you the encouragement that the, the spouse doesn't. And now there is something more than just a casual relationship. You dress a certain way when you're going to see them. You think about certain things when you think of them. And it's an idol in your life that is causing animosity in your home and in your heart. And God says, that's got to be torn down if you're going to know peace. The people say, all right, whatever you say, it's all true. Do whatever you think is best, but rescue us, but help. 
And it's okay to cry out to God and say, help, I need help. When the heart cries out to God for help, when the heart cries out to Jesus for help, Jesus is there to help. And he can do what no one else can do. But look what they did. They got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord. And then God's heart of compassion could bear no more their misery. So when the Ammonites were calling to arms and getting ready to come and fight them, the people were saying, all right, we need a judge, we need a leader, because whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites, that's the one who's going to be the leader of us and everyone that lives in this area of Gilead. And that's when Jephthah gets recruited. So the Ammonites are about to fight or are engaging in battle, skirmishes against Israel, and the elders of Gilead come to Jephthah, who is in this other land, Tob. We don't know exactly where it is, except we know that it's outside of Israel. He has fled Israel because he's a disfavored son. He's seen as a rebel. He is seen as a problem, but now he's seen as a solution. And they come to him and say, you know how to fight, you know how to lead, be our leader, be our fighter, so that we can fight against the Ammonites. And he accepts. Now we'll see more about that next week. But let's get to the point of his dialogue with Ammon. First, Jephthah does exhibit a great deal of wisdom and a sort of ambassadorial sensibility. He attempts detente. That is from the French for a, a, a loosening, an easing of situation. It's come to be utilized, particularly you heard it used in the Cold War between uh, the U.S. And, and, uh, and the Soviet Union to try and de-escalate high-tension situations. And a good way to do that? Talk. Open up dialogue. So Jephthah sends messengers to the king of the, of the Ammonites and he says, what have we done? Why are you attacking us? You know, the, the implication is we haven't done anything to warrant this or deserve this. We're not looking for a fight. Why do you want to fight? The king's response is going back in history to the time of the Exodus under the leadership of Moses when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were traveling through all of these lands in the wilderness before they would get into the promised land. And the king of the Ammonites says, when you did that, well, that was it. <laughs> it wiped it out. <laughs> when you did that, you took our land. You came through here and acted like you owned the place and now it belongs to you except it doesn't belong to you. Again, an ancient argument with very present echoes. And so, Ammon says, that land that you're in is ours. Give it back to us. Give it back to us peaceably and you won't have a fight with us. Now, whether that's true or not is a point I'll leave for you to judge. It's probably a point of debate. But in any case... A debate does ensue, and Jephthah's response reflects that debate. It can be summarized. It goes through verses 14 to 27 of chapter 11, basically like this. He says, look, during the Exodus, when Israel was going through these lands, we approached every village, every city, every group peacefully. And what we asked for was safe passage. We didn't want to take the land. We just wanted to be able to pass through without being killed. And we didn't receive a friendly response from anybody. The Moabites and the Amorites were attacking and fighting against us. And so our God protected us. And when we had to go into battle, our God gave us the victory. And to the victor go the spoils. Now you, you people, your God, Shemash or Chemosh, 
When he gives you territory or people groups or land, you don't give it back. So if you keep what your God gives to you, shouldn't we keep what our God gives to us? Now this is a very Semitic, uh, Middle Eastern way of thinking, but its logic is pretty appealing, right? But it should be seen that it's not just a logical argument, it's a spiritual argument. In fact, when he references Chemosh, that's actually a Moabite god, not an Ammonite god. Although the Ammonites may have adopted him because he may have been seen as being that territory's god. So anybody that lived there better worship that territory's god. So subtly, what Jephthah may be saying is effectively, our god, Yahweh, is the god of all the earth. And he is the one who gave us victory when we were attacked. And he is the one who gave us this land. But he's also making the point, Jephthah is, that land wasn't even yours. It's not Ammonite land. It was Amorite or Moabite, not yours. Now, they may have come in and taken it, but he's making a point that they're not original to it either. And he also goes on to say, by the way, this is 300 years ago. That's probably a round figure. It shouldn't necessarily be taken as an exact calculation. But he's saying, three centuries have passed since all of this happened. Why didn't you take back the land during any of those hundreds of years? You didn't because, in fact, the Lord gave it to us. I haven't done any wrong to you, he says, but you are waging war against me. But I don't want war. I want peace. But I am not going to give up what God has given to me. And it's not just a selfish argument. It's not a selfish argument at all on the part of Jephthah. It's a national argument. It's saying this is our boundary. This is where we are, and this is what God has given to us. So let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute. That's probably the pivotal phrase of today's teaching. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute. It's one of those areas in the book of Judges where we are reminded that the judge of all the judges is, in fact, the Lord. In court, let the Lord be the judge. You say, well, there's a judge and there's an attorney and I have my attorney. Maybe you've been in a court case. I've had to be in a lawsuit before. We were hit by, we were rear-ended by somebody. We didn't want to sue them, but they, their insurance company refused to pay. So the only uh, avenue open to us to cover medical bills that we couldn't pay was to engage in a legal dispute. It was very unpleasant. It was a horrible kind of animosity to be in. But we, Hazel and I, felt that our call was to be peacemakers and peaceable we did not want this. We just wanted what was just and right. We trusted the Lord, and the Lord worked in our favor. Whatever the situation is in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, let the Lord, the judge, be the one to decide. It's not for you to critique your spouse or your child. It may involve dialogue with them in which you share things that are appropriate to that relationship, or in which you give guidance, direction to your children. But let the Lord be the judge of what's going on in that relationship in our lives. We would be wise to pay heed to this. The king of Ammon paid no attention to it at all. And because of that, next week we're going to see that Ammon faces a bitter loss. But for this week, as we come to our conclusion and our time at the table, I want to summarize some thoughts that arise out of this exchange that have to do with dealing faithfully with animosity and adversity. The first thing is seek the Lord. Will you say that? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord's wisdom. Seek the Lord's perspective. 
Pray for people that are at odds with you or that you are at odds with. Ask the Lord to give you their perspective, to help you see things from their side of it. Um, ask the Lord to give you grace to forgive ways in which you feel wronged. But maybe also ask the Lord to give you the courage and the graciousness to be able to communicate that, if that's appropriate. Ask for God's wisdom about the situation. Open a channel of communication. Dialogue is necessary for peacemaking. When people stop talking, when people stop dealing with things, problems get worse. Animosity is only going to heighten unless you deal with something. Maybe you need to see a counselor. Maybe you need to have a friend to, to uh, unburden your heart to. Maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you need to, to, to address a situation in the workplace in a more formal way. Let God give you the guidance. Then open the channels of communication. Seek to do no wrong to anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean that you roll over. Yes, we are to turn the other cheek. But there are times where God will say to you, I want you to stand on something. This is something to stand on. But you need to be sure you've heard that from the Lord, not just your own preference. Sometimes the Lord will say, I want you to yield on something that you don't want to yield on. If God is saying yield on it, yield on it. But the point is, don't seek to harm someone else. Jephthah was saying, we don't want to harm you. You're harming us. We've got to respond, right? And there are times where you have to respond, but you don't have to respond with animosity. You don't have to respond in anger. You can reference the words of the Lord. You can reference the works of the Lord. This is what God's done in me. This is how God's speaking to me. This is what God is showing me. And ultimately, trust the situation into his hands. Put your life into his hands and let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute and bring peace to the situation and peace to your soul. I'm going to ask Pastor Henry to join me on the platform here. We're going to partake of communion together. We're going to have these elements go around the room. We ask that each one would wait until all have been served and then Pastor Henry will lead us in partaking of the elements. But I want to say this. These pieces of Jesus' body that we symbolically and sacramentally understand them to be. And this flow of his blood is the intervention of Jesus Christ into your life and mine, into our community today to bring peace. So as we receive him into ourselves, remember that we are one body together. If there are problems among us, because sometimes, believe it or not, there's animosity in the church, let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute. And let the blood of Jesus Christ and his love cover a multitude of sins.